There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Telling you what, Decked is a game changer. Decked has completely changed how I load, organize my truck. All my stuff that I want is always in there, out of my way, and secure. It's perfect. If you own a pickup truck that you use, you know, like a truck, the decked drawer system gives you weatherproof storage for all your gear. You can lock it up, too. You keep your tools and gear organized, job site or out in the field. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Go to deck.com slash meat eater and get yourself some free shipping. Many of you know Axis Deer is considered to be the best tasting venison on the planet. I've been hearing that for years. And that those deer cause some ecological harm. Well, Maui Nui Venison is bringing those Axis Deer to the market. So you can get some fresh cuts and sticks shipped to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. All right. Very roll? Yep. Let's roll. So just to be, uh, just to recap real quick, something we were just talking about a minute ago. A guy finds a dead mountain lion. But he's not just a guy. No, he's like a lion biologist. The reason he finds this lion is... So he wasn't just a guy. No, he was... That's so, what I meant. Well, I know, Yanni I, was saying he wasn't just a guy, but I didn't know to what extent he wasn't just a guy. No, he was the guy that got the message that uh, the collar on the lion was showing. Oh, it was, was collared. Was, yeah. was showing dead. Yeah. Right, so, See, I mean, that's why I'm glad I brought it back up. Yeah. Because I've been ruminating on it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It was collared. Because I'm like. Yeah. You don't just find so he just a dead finds lion. finds a dead no, lion, which that doesn't, doesn't happen, happen real no, often. that doesn't happen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's not going to just happen. Well, it could, but I mean, yeah. probably not. Pro- very unlikely. So he's a lion guy. Yeah. Yeah. His lion, he gets a death, a mortality signal. Yep. From a, an immobile collar. Okay. Yeah, and we should we should preface what we're saying right now by stating explicitly that we have not like revisited this story. We've just been kind of BSing about it for the last few minutes. So no, we haven't the specific, like we haven't pulled up the, there's a peer reviewed journal article and we can post that when, when we present this material, we'll, we'll make that, that link to that paper available. That's smart. So folks can, can then, you know, get the facts absolutely straight. But the, 
the general story here is there's a lion project. I'll interrupt real quick and say this. Yeah. You're listening to the buttery tones of, uh, of Carl Malcolm. <laughs> Thank Dr. You. Carl. Thanks for the intro. Yeah, so the story goes that this researcher, and you know, we should also say that we're not trying to make light of the situation. This is a tragic story. It's a tragic story, yes. We've, yes. We've been chatting over dinner. But it's also <laughs> become it's it's also become a public tale. Yeah. And we've been we've been discussing over dinner the topic of zoonotic disease. We've been going through the laundry list of all the all things. Alright, as long as we're laying it all out. Yeah. We also explain dinner. Well, I would like to hear you and Yanni explain dinner because I would like to get your perspectives on what we just experienced. Okay, so hold tight on the guy with the deadline, which is a worthwhile tale. And uh, Carl, in his work, um, has had occasion to go to China and work on wildlife issues in China. And in China... He eats all manner of things, and uh, one of the ones that he decided, a little bit of technology he decided to take home with him was a dish called hua which translates into English, hot pot. Hot pot. Hot, hot pot. pot. Yeah, pepper pots, that's a totally different South American dish. Pepper pot. Hot pot. Hua So he makes, Carl makes, out of, he's got a camp stove out on his brand new deck, which he did a wonderful job building. Thanks, man. And, um... On his camp stove, he's got a double burner camp stove, and on each burner, he's got a very peppery broth full of all kinds of peppers and, and uh, aromatics, um, Chinese flavors. Totally. And then he cut, he had frozen, and then right at the th- moment of thaw that it becomes conducive to nice uniform thin slices sliced a bunch of elk mule deer turkey heart turkey gizzard walleye pronghorn heart pronghorn heart several fungi yep some crazy mushrooms yep had some good mushrooms and then you bok get those choy. bok choy green just right up flat out green leaf Yep. Loose leaf lettuce. Yep, yep. And uh, then you get these little things ripping, and everyone just sits around like at a fondue party, mm-hmm. dipping hunks of meat and guts into Wait, wait. That. Do those organs constitute guts? When I think of guts, I don't think of heart. I guess gizzard. Yeah, gizzard's gut. I'll give you that. No, I think of it as a gut. All right, all right. So dip it into that, and my God, is that shit good, man. The key is don't let it... Don't, don't let, let it, it linger. Don't, we only, I only let one piece linger. Yeah. Then it just becomes boiled meat. Right. You're not making boiled meat. You're making no. like, you watch it. It's kind of like flash poach. I don't know what the, what the proper it would term be, would be. I mean, honestly, if that water, if that, not water, the broth, the hot pot is simmering. Um, you could call it a blanch, I think. Yeah. <laughs> you blanch. Blanching. You blanch the meat. Yeah. Um, 30 seconds isn't too long, but it's plenty. Yeah. Yeah, and as you're listening through those those ingredients, the things we were cooking, one that was notably missing from that list that's really popular in China that would be a unique culinary experience that I'm sad I couldn't provide is uh, coagulated duck blood. Mm. That's one that like... You just pour the blood in there and let it... Yeah, but you don't really pour it. It's almost got the uh, consistency of like a jello gelatin. You can slice it 
and it retains its uh, integrity as you pick it up with chopsticks. You can dip it. And Almost like a it. piece of liver then. Yeah, it's, it, it is very yeah. livery. Yeah, yeah. Ah. And I didn't think back when we were in mid-December amid these massive southward traveling flocks of mallards, at no point did it cross my mind that I would have an opportunity to serve mallard blood via hot pot to you boys. Because if it had... I might have been out there trying to figure out a way to extract that to blood extract the in blood. the field. Yeah, I'm not sure how that would have worked out. but I've looked into it for uh, blood sausage, and it's difficult. Oh, to capture the blood? I don't think it'd be that difficult. No, I got a friend, a, a dog trainer, and he, this is Jacob Zeiske up in uh, Arena, Wisconsin, and uh, he's big into training versatile hunting dogs. And these dogs are expected to point on dry land, to retrieve in the yeah, water. Yeah, NAVDA. That's NAVDA. what Ronnie Bame's big North American Versatile Hunting Dog yeah. Association. The dogs running around here are dogs that have been tested through NAVDA trials. Oh. Yeah. Really? So, yeah. Do you know Ronnie? I don't. Well, I know Ronnie, you know, through what you do. I've not oh met him. Oh, God. But guys, I'd love to. You guys so this dude, Jacob. I'd have to leave the room, but, man, Ron- you guys be able to talk about dogs. <laughs> <laughs> so this dude, Jacob. Like, you know, there was a stint where we were hunting at, as college students, like, more than anyone has any reason, like, any right to be hunting. We were, we were hunting a lot. And he had worked out a way to kind of capture blood from big game animals that we'd shot. And he'd get it into jugs. You know, see, you know, and you're, like, field dressing a deer. And in the Midwest, you typically have the opportunity to bring like the whole deer out if you want to you could field dress it yeah but just if you hit it through the lungs just tip it on its back wait five minutes and scoop it all out of there totally yeah so it my point is it's not difficult to capture blood from a big game animal i'm not sure how you do it from a duck what was he doing with it he'd freeze it and then he would use it for basically simulating blood tracking like over time. Oh, I thought he's making blood oh. sausage. No, no, no. Yeah, so not that's for wh- human consumption. No, no, no. That's yeah. why. I, that's why I mentioned the whole uh, dog you. thing. Uh, the you. purpose of capturing the blood was related to dog training. You only have you know a couple months out of the year when you can be shooting white-tailed deer. You want to have a steady supply of deer blood over the course of the training season. So we had these chest freezers that had all assortment of fish and game products in them, among which were these jugs of deer blood. Yeah. Have you seen the movie Only Lovers Left Alive? I have not seen that movie. Lay it on me. No, no. Go ahead. Just, that's it. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. I'm Watch keep... it. We'll discuss next time. All right. Fair no, enough. when I looked into making blood sausage. Oh, is that the end of your thing? Uh, that's all Just I have to say. Just that he was say. capturing blood. Yeah, that's all I have to say. Like that, I feel like that was the main missing ingredient because we had surf and turf. We had some organ meat. We had a good representative cross-section of the big game species of New Mexico. But in China, we would have been having a little blood, too. Yeah, in China, there definitely would have been, uh, the, the blood would have been a key ingredient that we were missing. But I appreciate the feedback. You know, like, when, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend to be the culinary student that either of you guys are. But when you're going to be hosting, you know, Steve Rinella and... Giannis Patelis for dinner. Damn, sure better have some you hot got, pot. You got well. You got to figure out like, all right, I'm not. I'm not gonna like. I'm not gonna pull out a package of Oscar Mayer wieners and uh, slap those in a white bread bun. No, Let's if go- we'd have had something that you hadn't shot, I'd have been surprised. Yeah, well, I think that's probably standard. Like if yeah, I'd be like, yeah, if I'm gonna go to Carl's house, I'm gonna eat some wild meat that Carl went out and secured for himself. Yeah, but, we. Yeah, but we, no, I don't have any. I'm not like. I used to be a good cook, but I'm not a good cook anymore. Because of kids? Yeah. 
Yeah, they change it. It's just like I just don't have that kind of time. Like now, it's just as they eat so damn early. It's like, yeah, I, I like, yeah. I just don't have. I don't. I don't get the everyday spend. I don't get the everyday when I'm home. Spend hours messing around. Yeah. I'm, I'm like cooking for a two year old, a four year old, and a seven year old who at seven thirty, I'm we're brushing their teeth. Yeah. Giannis, you were saying something. Blood. So you want to get your hands on some blood? What's no, I, I do. I would love to make blood sausage. It's a very you know popular. Uh, um, what do I want to say? Like you know, cultural Latvian dish, right? Like I grew up eating blood sausage with cranberry, uh, not jam, but like a uh, like what do you call it? like a jam that still has like the like Chutney? rough rough berries and stuff kind of in it. I'd call that maybe like a chutney. Well, I can tell you the difference between jelly and jam, but it's such a dirty yeah, joke that's that a, I can't. That's I don't a bad joke. Yeah. But anyways, I, I looked into like the whole like getting blood to make it right, and and you can ask for it and buy it at, at a butcher shop, but the the you want it in a liquid state, right? And doesn't take long for that to change. To, yeah. So the whole thing is like how you cool it down, and you'd basically would have to have like a giant vat with an ice wand. Is what it would take to do it out in the field. Really? Yes. Because you'd have to sit there and basically stir it with an ice wand to bring the temp down, maintaining the liquid state. If you get serious about this, I would just think, if you get serious about want to be the first guy, or like, not the first guy, because everybody's, at this point in our history, someone has done everything. Mm-hmm. But if you want to be one of the guys, or the first guy you know about to do it, you, I would think that you'd go do it at a place like Doug's place. No, no, exactly. Get all exactly. ready. Yeah. Right? Get all ready. And then on opening day, when you know the, the ample opportunities, right? And then you're all set. And blouch! And then run over there and start processing your blood sausage and yeah. shit. So the question is, would you shoot it in the lungs and go what you were just explaining? That you'd have that it on its where back. I would, That's where I would capture or, the blood. Or... Would you shoot it somewhere else where you would not cause that internal hemorrhaging and cause all that blood to be in the cavity and then some sort of like try to then cut its throat and drain it that way? I see where you're going with this, but you're into ethical, you're into an ethical minefield. If you're mm-hmm. saying you're going to cripple it up. No, no, no. I'm not saying so that you can then run over. There's shot placement you can make and, and dispatch an animal in the neck. Sure, or the, not gonna or bleed the, or the, or or the high cat. shoulder shot is probably what I would. You know. No, if if I was in that situation where where God comes down and puts a gun to your head and says you gotta make deer blood sausage, um, I would uh, I would shoot it through the lungs and then hustle over there and get it on its back so the blood's not exiting the wound mm-hmm. hustle over there get it on its back wait some number of minutes and uh and, and collect it out of there going there with a small pitcher yeah just like a and cup. Maybe, maybe a ladle ladle it out start making blood sausage um you, are you uh so you haven't watched only lovers left alive no sir have you watched the film southern comfort I can't say that I have. Okay, in Southern Comfort, it's a great movie, uh, kind of. 
a ringing endorsement. Well, it, it tries to take a little bit too much from Easy Rider toward the end, but uh, um, in it, some National Guard guys are on like doing a, a mock war game scenario in the bayous of Louisiana, and they're out there with just blanks, and they get some of them get lost. And they steal a, uh, you know, those du- like the Cajun dugouts, the pirogues. Oh yeah, they steal one because they're lost and they're sick of being lost, and they steal one, and that leads them to getting crossways with some people that you shouldn't get crossways with, and then all kinds of. It has a lot of elements of deliverance. I was, dude, I was a lot of deliverance. Just debating whether and, to bring that one up. E- if you, if deliverance had sex with the Easy Rider. That would be the baby. The baby would be Southern Comfort. Right. And so that's a better in endorsement. This, in this, <laughs> in this, they make blood sausage. Oh, okay. In this movie. Um, and it's like a it's a it's a it's a pretty captivating scene. And another one, a documentary called Brothers Keeper. It's a documentary about three brothers who murder their father in their trial for killing their father. Um, they kill a pig and collect some blood out of it. And Yanni, before you embark on your little mission here, you should you should take in some cinema, and <laughs> uh, and get some pointers. I will. Carl. Yes, sir. Um. Oh, real quick now. Uh, the lion. Yeah, let's get back to that lion. But I don't, let's not dwell on it. But just kind of lay it. Yeah. Out so the, again, <clears throat> the disclaimer: like we we've all heard this story, Steve, Giannis, and I, and we're kind of recounting facts that are maybe a little murky in hindsight, but the takeaway was this guy was a biologist working on the lion project. One of the collars goes into a mortality mode from basically being immobile for a certain amount of time. So they know there's likely a dead cat out there. The guy goes out, finds this cat and it looks flawless. Like there's no visible evidence that could lead to a, an obvious conclusion about the cause of death. So the biologist scoops up the mountain lion, takes it back to his garage, if I remember mm-hmm. properly. And I want to say it was it was kind of like the in retrospect looking at it, it's like the perfect storm because it's the weekend, right? So it's not like during the week where he would then have maybe taken to a lab and I don't, you know, maybe oh, had other biologists around. Yeah. Or I remember you telling me this part of it. Yeah, yeah. So and and that's a perfect example of a detail that I either didn't know or have forgotten already. So. Hopefully, I've sufficiently. Hey, I just recently disclaimed. had a thing. I like listen. Yeah. Trust your instinct. Trust your memory. Because I was recounting recently a plane crash okay. that I, that I witnessed the aftermath of. Oh wow! And 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 this was when I was a child. Yeah. Okay. Not even ten, probably. And I was recounting details of it. And I'm like, I can't remember. But I think this happened. Think that happened. And then someone found the article and sent it to me. And dude. You gotta when it comes to stuff like this, I feel like you can generally kind of trust the little feelings, the things you kind of felt like you remembered. Yeah, and I would feel like that would be a more applicable mindset if this were something that I had experienced as opposed to like, articles that I'd read. No, 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 you're right. But I, I dig where you're coming from. So, yeah, the guy takes the cat back to his garage, and like a good biologist would want to do, he he's hell-bent on determining the cause of death of this mountain lion and elects to perform a necropsy on the cat which is basically not a necropsy nope necropsy necropsy i'm gonna i'm gonna 
give that a firm knee definitive. No, I'm thankful he did that because I was always confused about that word. Yeah, and I'm sure there's some people who will disagree, but I'd be happy to hash it out with them at a later date. So the, the process of a necropsy is essentially going through and eliminating possible causes of death. So one of the first things you do is try to get the skin off the cat and look to see if there's any evidence of trauma that's visible kind of superficially once you uh, once you've skinned the animal out. Is there any, you know, any explanation? Um, and essentially the guy made some mistakes in terms of the standard protocols around limiting your exposure to potential pathogens. Mm -hmm. And again, if memory serves me correctly, he was using some standard, like the kind of tools you would find in your average garage to conduct this necropsy. Reciprocating saw. Reciprocating saw. Yeah. Saws all. And, in the process of cutting this cat apart, trying to figure out what killed the cat, he ends up exposing himself to uh, various bodily fluids from the cat. And I, I don't recall what the exact uh, mode of exposure was, whether something got in his eyes or whether it got in his mouth or a cut in his hand or if they ever even determined what the route of exposure was. But the takeaway was that within a matter of a very short period of time, like on the order of a day and a half or two days, something to that effect, the guy was dead from the plague, which is what had killed the mountain lion. Yep. And we got on this subject because we were going down the laundry, the impressive laundry list of zoonotic diseases that Steve and Orianis have <laughs> wrestled with, which is which is a, a pretty but not that one. No, and that's when you don't want to. And I used to be, I used to do tree work, tree surgeon work. And um, the guy I worked for hated squirrels. And we differed on that because I always loved squirrels. But he hated squirrels because of the plague. Really? And I was like, come on, dude, the plague? But apparently it's something to watch out for. And yeah. I don't want to make light of this man's death. No, I don't either. But I was to, to, but on to that go track, and find yeah. to go and find, uh, if you go to com slash podcasts you will find podcast descriptions of all the episodes and within that when you're listening to this go there and we will have that we will find that peer review journal article and put it up yeah and i'm glad that you said that steve because i could i could see myself or any number of colleagues potentially making that kind of a mistake you know like the notion of being killed by the plague when you're trying to do a necropsy on a mountain lion it was not the first thing on that gentleman's mind and you know we're obviously not trying to make light of the situation in any way but it's a it's a powerful story because um, zoonotic diseases are not something to mess around with and i feel like you know we have a tendency to kind of get cavalier with the way we handle dead animals oh yeah, there's no reason why I don't use latex gloves, but I don't use latex gloves. Um, I even sometimes carry them with me and don't use them. Well, even when I use them, I feel like half the time I end up with as much blood inside the glove as yeah. you know more than I would have on my hands. Anyway. I, yeah. I have for garage chores. I have some very heavy duty ones that I keep thinking about bringing with me, yeah. but I don't do it because one, I don't like it when 
I don't like going down that path, and I don't like going down it with myself or with my kids of always thinking that everything's going to hurt you. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't like when I catch myself in a paranoid state, and and I don't like to act like the world's so dangerous all the time and that everything's bad and going to get you. No. Well, it, let's, let's talk about this. What is the threat? Of um, like just let's just take the white-tailed deer and you're gutting it. I don't know. I don't know what bloodborne what bloodborne pathogens one is trying to avoid on a white-tailed deer. Yeah, I I would say I am not really well equipped to answer that, but I'll give you a, a brief tale along these lines. Um, some good friends of mine up in Wisconsin, we would have these annual parties where we would all make a mountain of sausage, right? The, the annual sausage fest. Yep. And uh, you, so you, you'd be butchering deer and all the random cuts that you wouldn't be packaging as like a roast or steak or whatever, you'd throw those in a big heap. And then at some point later on in the year, after the hunting was you over, all that thawed shit out, out again. have a big yeah. sausage party. So not naming names, you guys know who I'm, I'm talking about here. No. Uh, the, guy, the guys listening will know. Oh. We had a sausage party where... The uh, the rules of proper like hygiene and handling the meat were not followed. Okay, and by all accounts, the series of events was one of our sausage making team with meaty hands touched a doorknob with the meaty hands. Okay, like not doing enough hand washing between touching the meat, touching the doorknob, and ended up later, like not not very long later, but after the sausages were made, grabbing the door handle, which still probably had some of this meat juice on it. Okay. And other members of this individual's family also did the same thing and ended up with a pretty wicked case of foodborne illness cranking through the family from... Well, how do you know it came from the doorknob? Well, like the series of events is what leads to the conclusion that it had to do with the meat handling. So the, the doorknob is the the point on the house that was identified as the likely thing a lot of people were handling. And there was a point in time where the hands went from the sausage meat to the door. And this person was like, ah, it's no big deal. Yeah. And, and the conclusion, and it's not bulletproof, but the conclusion is that it likely came from getting this meat juice. So it's kind of a foodborne thing as opposed to a zoonotic disease. Yeah. But I do think like in general, we have a tendency to be kind of cavalier around this stuff. That said, your point about choosing what you want to be scared of, you know, when I think, you know, you don't have to be an, an actuary scientist to recognize that the things we do that are the most dangerous do not involve handling dead animals, right? Yes, it's like yes. getting behind the wheel. So if you want to be scared about something, I would suggest that's like at the top of your list. Yeah, that would be like a high priority scary thing. Yeah. So your point is well taken, but I, the reason I, I'm going on about this is that I could see a lot of really good people, like sound biologists, being a little bit cavalier in approaching a dead animal like that, wanting to get to the bottom of what killed it and making the same mistakes. So I have a lot of sympathy for what that man went through and also his family. You know, it's a horrible story. But, yeah. And it's like, what, 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 not that you blame the dead, but what sort of alleviates blame 
is that it was so unusual that we're now sitting around talking about it. Yeah, this was a couple years ago too. They wrote a someone wrote yeah. a paper about it in a peer reviewed journal. So it's like if it was just a thing that like, oh, any idiot would know. Right. Right? Yep. Me and Yanni got sick from eating undercooked bear meat <laughs> while talking about how we're probably gonna get sick from eating undercooked yeah. bear meat. So that's like a level of stupidity that this really isn't because something that just like so unexpected and without precedent yes. struck this guy. Yes. It wasn't like, ha ha, uh, this is really stupid. We could get sick from this undercooked bear meat. Let's have some more. Totally. You know? Yeah. Like if we'd have died from that, I'd be like, yeah, that's worth a chuckle. <laughs> like how he had a good run was. Yeah. with a stupid ending. Yeah. Now, uh, just to change subject real quick. There's yeah. a thing I want you to tell people about. Okay. Um, can I ask you another unrelated, like, uh, not that any of this is related. <laughs> can you real quick get into that, that you used to, uh, be a contract deer shooter for or airport? So I'll get into that. Uh, it's, that's that not, went? not a very accurate that's not explanation of how it went. <laughs> no, Everybody's so, like, man, this is a good job. <laughs> no, well. But it was it's like not far enough off the off the mark. So here's the deal. Um, I actually, as uh, an undergraduate, incorporated my own business and then bid for a number of contracts to do wildlife management work. And I had a number of clientele that included uh, proving grounds for automobiles and no airport work. But oh. in essence, it was very similar to airport work where you were trying to alleviate human wildlife conflicts in essence by removing wildlife from the scene and uh so i've shot a lot of deer a lot of turkeys in situations that were far from a hunting context yeah and for folks who haven't done that kind of work you know it might sound like oh man getting paid to shoot deer that sounds Uh, awesome you probably get over that real quick you get over that real quick yeah and it's you know it's really hard work and also you know my my mentality around hunting and around wildlife is such that uh, I don't take killing lightly. And when I, when I have a successful hunt and my mindset is in this mode of thinking about meals like the one we just had and stocking up, you know, the, the translation of death to food, it feels good it feels like something to celebrate and feel happy about yeah but when you're thinking when the animal is in this context of being a problem and you're like i need to eliminate this problem by killing this animal it is a very different set of emotions that i personally experience in that sort of a setting so we're talking you know like in a given year i might i might shoot or I might have shot some of those years in the neighborhood of like 50 or 60 deer in a year. And it, it doesn't take too many deer into that 50 deer, let's say, before you're kind of like, man, this is not pleasant. At least, again, for me personally, that linkage if that between... Was all, if that was your only relationship, it might have been different, but you're juxtaposing it to the feeling, to the celebratory feeling of hunting for meat. So you had like that confusion occurring in your head. I don't know if it's confusion. I feel like even now in Maybe hindsight, I feel pretty. 
Yeah, I feel like it's just it, it's so disparate. There's so there's such different things. You know, like and again in the hunting world, this this word hunting to folks who haven't, especially to folks who haven't experienced it, <clears throat> a lot of different things kind of get put under that umbrella. A lot of different activities, and this this is very much we're talking about culling wildlife, which is a very different thing from hunting. Both involve killing wildlife. One of them to me is something, you know, that, that I enjoy more than almost any other activity. Like it's one of the most satisfying things I've experienced is being able to hunt and feed my family through that activity. The other thing, culling, um, I see the, I see the merit, I see the value in that management approach and there's there's a utility to being able to manage wildlife in that way. But when you're the person pulling the trigger, at least based on my experience being in that role, it is a night and day different experience from going out with the hope that you're going to fill your freezer. Yeah. How, how would you, how would you get paid for that kind of work? Well, I had a, I had a, a corporation. I, I incorporated, it would have been about 2003 and I ran that business for 10 years. Um, I had contracts in place where I, was, I would essentially charge by the hour. So I'd keep track of the amount of time I was out doing the work. Um, and then for virtually all the species, all this work was done in Michigan, by the way. And none of it involved migratory wildlife species. So it was always the situation that the state of Michigan would issue a special, essentially, permit to be able to kill those species in the interest of, of managing. And uh, were they sanctioned to do that for geese or would that fall under migratory waterfowl? Yeah, so geese are a good example. And actually, like a, resident in geese, the early ground geese. <laughs> it doesn't matter if they're resident or not because it's a migratory species. So in order to secure a similar permit to manage migratory waterfowl, as an example, um, you'd need to also have federal involvement, Fish and Wildlife Service involvement to get yeah. a permit for that. So never crossed into that arena. Predominantly what we were dealing with were white-tailed deer and wild turkeys. So I've shot, like for a Midwesterner, I've shot more turkeys with a rifle than probably any guy you'll meet. Yeah. Um, and again, that also was very, you know, a lot of this was shooting from vehicles. A lot of the culling work with white-tailed deer happens at night, shooting them with spotlight. Oh, okay. So it's not at all about fair chase. And you're not, you don't charge by the deer. You charge by the hour. That's correct. Yep. Got you. Yeah, that was going to be my question. Is uh, It's like, so, sure, the, the pulling the trigger is different. You know, that aspect of it is different. Yep. But did you ever feel like you were hunting no. during the thing? It's like you're using totally different yeah. methods. You're just max, like, you know, one of the, and I, I love to, I love to bow hunt. Um, I love hunting in challenging situations. We've been talking a little bit about this archery Ibex hunt here in New Mexico that I've enjoyed the last few years, which has a very low success rate. So I, I like having the deck stacked against me. I like the challenge. And with the culling operations, you are doing everything you can to be as efficient as you can be while accounting for human safety. Because that's another element here as we're talking about wildlife management oftentimes in a landscape that is very much human dominated. So you have people all around, you know, you're, you're dealing with trying to 
be absolutely safe with every shot you're taking, as is the case, obviously, when you're hunting as well. But it's so much easier to accomplish that when you're in a remote landscape than when you're in, like, suburbia. Um, So, yeah, like, no holds barred. You're talking about shooting at night, shooting from vehicles, baiting, um, you name it. And that also, you know, feeds into this easily discernible discernible uh disparity that, that i've been talking about a little yeah. bit already yeah i would I, I wouldn't do that i mean there's many times for the bulk of my life i would have it's a luxury to be able to say that i wouldn't take that work yeah now because i don't need to yeah but i did do like work like that trapping mm-hmm. animal controls animal damage control trapping but never shooting yeah and um no now man i wouldn't be like sweet it's like a type of hunting yeah and it another, wouldn't it wouldn't feel like that another thing that makes it feel way more like work is when you're talking about dealing with that number of animals because a lot of times what we'd end up doing is like donating the meat to a food bank you know like well, you could the, do that i was yeah. gonna guess that you had that you had to discard <clears throat> it because of the permit process no we were able to we were able to donate donate the meat from the turkeys and the deer so you dress all those deer out. Yeah, yeah. And when you, so imagine you're on like a five-day deer hunt and you succeed in filling your tag and getting a deer. And all that work of field dressing, dragging the animal around or quartering it up, packing it out, that all feels kind of like a celebratory part of the process. You know, it's hard work, but it's kind of the, the icing on the cake. It's like the hard, the hard work that you have earned the privilege of doing through your successful hunt. But when you start talking about like, okay, we know we want to try to remove 40 or 50 deer from this site. That, that becomes a huge amount of work. No, so no. I got like, I thought I knew how to field dress and handle a, a whitetail based on my hunting experience leading up to that point. But I got a lot of, a lot of experience in a short period of time handling that many deer, but it felt entirely like work. Yep. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months I've become friends with, and my God have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years you get one of these knives up and open it it is sharp like something that came from outer space and here's the deal they make knives that can be sharpened you can work on these knives if you don't want to work on them you send it to them and they'll work on it they'll get it sharp phenomenal hunting knives if you want to see them in action we just did uh me and uh john hayes the taxidermist just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear um, watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now, for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now, you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER, and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people, ten percent off with the code Meat Eater. That's a good deal. 
Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50 and it has airflow. So you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's, how, that's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. I don't know. They seem great to me. It's just an improvement on perfection. The new system, made in the USA, gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed you can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're, they're, they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like you can still slide stuff right across the deck. It doesn't catch on the D-rings. The D-rings are built in. The drawer system fits any truck or van on the road in the USA from the last 20-plus years. Deck is a game-changer. There's no more like leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you. The stuff I want in my truck is in my truck, out of the way, and secure. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. I was, I hesitate, like I don't want to call it hunting. Um, uh, but because I can't think of a better word right now. I, I hunted in Scotland one time. And in Scotland, you know, so in the, Scotland, hunting typically refers to fox hunting. Yes, we stalk. They say stalking, right? So That's stalking. if you're hunting. And what was funny deer. about it was that there's this guy, and he, and he, you know, and there, like, we have the North American model of wildlife, and here, wildlife is public property. So, whether if wildlife's on private property, it's still owned by the public, it just happens to be residing on private. In Scotland, if you own the land, you own the animals on it. And uh, they sell the meat into marketplaces. So when you go into a, a butcher shop in Scotland, it's you'll find rabbits and ducks that have shotgun pellets in them, and you'll find deer that have been shot by guns hanging in there. And so on one hand, they're running an operation where they're culling deer and selling them, but when there's a client, they put on a different, even different outfit of clothing. You get dressed up in the like the tweeds is ridiculous dressed up in a little suit and you go out and and stalk or hunt red deer so i went and did this with the gamekeeper um the jägermeister right the gamekeeper and i remember we did this and the next day he was going back out to coal different clothes (laughs) different firearm but would go out into the same area and set up on a knob 
and shoot 25 red deer. And he somehow was able to maintain the dichotomy that there's no, there's culling, and then there's stalking. I'm like, but as best as I could tell, it had to do with the tweeds, right? And when it gets, when hunting gets that, like hunting that borders that close on something else, it's like it just, like you said, it's just not hunting. It's not hunting. It's like you're shooting a semi wild form of li- you're like dispatching a semi wild form of livestock. You know. Yeah. Now here's another thing I wanted to ask you about. Oh, what kind of guns are you using? You're doing that. I shot a Tika M595 in a 243 caliber. So I've shot with like a suppressor. I did not shoot a suppressor, and the reason for that was the the licensing process in Michigan was sufficiently difficult to navigate that I did not embark down yeah. that path. That was the funny thing about Scotland. This is before suppressors started to be able to use here, and um, you know, quite a few years ago. And I was like, "Man, I can't believe you boys can use suppressors." And they're like, "I can't believe you boys hunt without them. You crazy?" Yeah. Yeah, they thought it was irresponsible to hunt without a suppressor. My ears would agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> Not just yours, but the dude next to you. Yeah. Um, let me Now, let me ask you this question. This is something you told me about. Uh, you're in China, and you're at the latitude, roughly the same latitude where you'd spent your entire life. Yeah. Yeah. And you're telling me how you're out in the woods, and there's, like, equivalents yeah. for everything. Yeah. It's tell that, explain that, <laughs> and then tell the like the big exception. Yeah, do you know what I'm talking about? Right? I do. I yeah. totally do. And in, in Michigan, at least, one of the cool things is you travel from south to north. Um, the The state of Michigan, along the side of the highway, has these signs that indicate when you've passed the 45th parallel. Yeah, oh yeah. I don't know if other states do that or not. Have you seen those other places? No, but I know. I think of it as a distinctly Michigan thing that tells you when you've passed yeah. the 45th parallel. That was that was where the Mason Dixon line, I think, is. They mark it. Yeah. So the, was... the, the the like if you look at a map of the U.S., that big arcing line that defines most of our northern border is the 49th. Yeah, but when you cr- you cross the 45th, and they put a line because you're halfway between the equator and the north and pole. the pole and like each yeah. degree of latitude i think gives you about 70 miles as you march up sounds about right yeah so that was my you know like as a middle school student i remember passing those signs and, and that was finally what helped me like differentiate between longitude and latitude and i i have fond memories of traveling traveling up to the cabin and passing the 45th parallel sign on our way up there and so if you and look I think it would say like halfway between the equator and North Pole. Yeah. Or something it worded it beyond just the forty fifth parallel. It explained yeah. what that meant. I, I I would love to have that sign in front of me right now to to refresh my memory, but I do remember like the notion of equidistant between the equator and the North Pole. So if you were to hop on that forty fifth parallel and just start traipsing along that line at the same latitude and then get over to China, the same kind of distance between the equator and you the north pole wisconsin minnesota well that's if you go yeah, north if you, to go, if you oh go you're going west. the other direction. i'm just you could go either way yeah right it's 
damn near the same distance either way. So the study sites. Can I interrupt you? Sure. Yeah. You just remind me of something. Bring it. You know, like when you're a kid and they say, like, oh, if you dug a hole straight yeah. down, yeah. you'd come out in China. Uh-huh. Like you wouldn't for most. You would if you got your angle right. Most people in America. But you know what that's called? It's called the Antipodes. Wherever you are, if you burrowed a hole, straight dead through. nuts down through the the, the core. core of the earth, yeah, and hit, you would arrive at your previous location's antipodes. Huh? And that's that's singular, or those those two points would be antipodes. That I don't know. All right, well, but there you are. You're on the forty fifth parallel. Yeah. So follow that around the globe halfway, and you know somewhere in like west west central China. Sichuan province. So I was doing I was doing some research there in eight different nature reserves in Sichuan, Shanxi, and Yunnan provinces, kind of the southwestern part of the country. And for for folks to imagine kind of the geography of China, it's got some striking similarities to the layout of the United States, where along the eastern coast of China, you have these major concentrations of people, like huge cities you know, that like the termite mound housing, just like high rises with tons and tons of people. But then if you go out to the wild west of China, you start getting into some rugged country that is relatively remote. Um, And in that chunk of the country, kind of west, central, southern China is where you'll find Shanxi, Sichuan, Yunnan provinces. And I was doing some work with Asiatic black bears in eight different nature reserves in those three provinces. And one of the study sites where I worked is in northern Sichuan province, a, a nature reserve called Tanjaha. And this, this place, it's kind of, it reminds me kind of like the Chronicles of Narnia, where you'd see vegetation that makes sense because you're at this latitude where you, you know I grew up around oak trees and kind of maple beach forest. And, you know, I, I knew the pine trees and the spruce trees of my home forests in northern Michigan. But if you caught a glimpse of a, a deer in Michigan, you know, you didn't have to double take. You knew it was white-tailed deer. Whereas in Tanjaha, I believe there are seven different ungulate species in that reserve. So you might catch a little glimmer of... How big is this reserve? It's a good question. And I would have to do a little digging. I think I've actually got that figure. I've, I printed off a couple papers from there, so I'll try to get you, a, get you a number on that while I'm chatting here. But you would see species like musk deer, um, muntjac, or barking deer, as they're called, goral, syro. There was this amazing, you know, one of the most epic animals I've ever seen in the wild is the Sichuan golden takin which is this huge mountain, <laughs> this, this description won't do it justice. Like people should just look this animal up and check out pictures of it. Sichuan golden talking, but it's like a stout, really sort of f- front heavy goat of the mountains. That's massive. Like on the order of, I'm just winging a guess here. They probably weigh 500, 600 pounds. The wild mountain goat. Yeah, but it, I'm saying mountain goat, and it like you're gonna see a picture of this thing, and be like that doesn't look like a mountain goat. Yeah, this big golden, uh, f- like flowing fur. They stick out on the side of a hill. Like you wouldn't need 
good glass to find these things. They just stick out like a sore thumb. And when I was, when I was working in these nature reserves, I was thinking, you know, what kind of animals do you need to be worried about out here? Asiatic black bears are notoriously more uh, aggressive than American black bears. So I was always kind of like, ah, bears in the back of my mind. And then I'd heard stories about nature reserve staff having gnarly encounters with wild boars from time to time, especially if they had young with them. So I was, you know, kind of hip to the fact. And that's wild boars in their native range. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. And then what I didn't realize is that this animal, the Takin, according to the folks who live in that chunk of country and told me all their stories, that was the animal to be the most worried about. And the reason for that is that they, they lived in such rugged stuff. There were these, these passes that uh, villagers would use to traverse the reserve between communities, so like footpaths. And they'd be up in the rugged high country and on the same trail as a talking. And people would fairly often, apparently based on the stories I was told, have situations where they would, they would have an option of either getting run over by these things because they, they'll charge you if they feel like they're threatened or bailing off the side of some nasty cliff and breaking their legs or yep. even dying. And there was a researcher on a talking project working in that chunk of country who um, was trying to dart one of these things. And I, I didn't witness this happen, but I heard the story. And the guy was in kind of a tight spot when he took the shot. And the talking after getting hit with the dart ended up chasing him off a ledge and he jumped off this ledge and, and kind of jacked up one of his ankles, like not a major fall, but on yep. the order of like 15, 20 feet. So the talking, it turns out was the animal to be most concerned about in that landscape. So just the biodiversity was amazing. But the story that I was telling you a while back, Steve was, you know, I'm, I'm in this forest for the first time. I'm, I'm kind of trying to get my bearings from a botanical perspective, understand like, okay, so there's a, that looks like a chestnut tree. That looks like a, uh, an oak tree. That looks like a walnut tree. And I'm, I'm kind of starting to feel like, all right, I get this forest. And as I'm walking along this ridge up ahead, I see tree limbs swinging. I hear branches breaking and I'm thinking, oh, maybe that's, maybe that's a bear up there or, you know, who the, who the heck knows what it's going to be. I kind of close the distance a little bit. And there's this whole string of golden monkeys in the oak forest jumping around in the treetops. And they see me and start vocalizing, barking, yelling. And there are monkeys running along the forest floor. There are monkeys crashing through the treetops. And I remember just standing there thinking to myself, I'm not in Michigan anymore. (laughs) This is a different ball game here. So, yeah, really fantastic as as a wildlife biologist just getting a chance to experience a different a different piece of ground um with that kind of biodiversity and it was really humbling too because i thought you know i had these these preconceived notions of what china was like that were really really ignorant frankly um i was just imagining like a massive sea of humanity and people you know packed in on top of each other and some of the cities, you know, I've, I've felt that way in the cities, but there are places in these reserves that are every bit as breathtaking as anything I've seen anywhere else in the world. And the biodiversity is unbelievable places where you can, you know, drink the water that's bubbling out of streams, 
and uh, high elevation rivers where you can, you know, stand on a cliff and look down and see every pebble on the bottom of the stream, just beautiful landscapes. Uh, But another important distinction that I love to point out to folks who enjoy recreating in our public lands here in the U.S. is that some of these reserves are, in essence, very difficult for the average Chinese citizen to access. And the recreational opportunities are very limited. Because so, it's cost prohibitive to get there? No, because they're not, they're not, the lands are not set aside to provide necessarily uh, for recreational opportunity. These, are, these reserves were in large part established to protect the remnant habitat of pandas. Okay. So they, they exist primarily as a conservation tool for a species of, you know, kind of globally recognized significance. It's like the poster child of Chinese yeah, conservation. Yeah. And so it's not, they're not operating under a multiple, multiple use, multiple yeah, use no, mandate. No, it's a conservation mandate. Now, that being said, it was also really interesting to note how much agriculture was happening inside the boundaries of some of these reserves. And that was one of the things that the research I was doing focused on was um, the degree to which agricultural activity inside of the nature reserve boundaries uh, related to the stress responses of bears in that landscape. So I was looking at the relationship between the production of hormones indicative of sort of a stress response to a variety of factors, including human activity, including natural food abundance, including whether the bears were within the boundaries of a nature reserve or outside the boundaries of the nature reserve, the overall kind of quality of the habitat. Um, And so you hear the word nature reserve and it might elicit a picture in your mind of, you know, kind of an undisturbed landscape. But within the boundaries of some of these reserves, you have people living, raising livestock, uh, growing crops, in some cases poaching. So it's not as simple as it might seem at first blush. What is the, um, you can approach this however you want, but but I know that one of the things you did there is you delivered a lecture on the North American model. So you delivered a lecture on the idea of publicly owned wildlife and public harvest of sustainable resources, which is like a foreign concept there. Explain that, but also explain what what is like in what what forms does hunting take in China? So, I'll start off by saying I've presented that kind of a presentation in a variety of formats in China, and that included speaking to university classes at Peking University about the various models of resource use around the country, including the North American. You mean around model. the world. Uh, yeah, thank you, around the world. So talking about subsistence, hunting, talking about the European model, the African model, the North American model. and What's the African model, real quick? So the African model would be basically wealthy international tourists paying high dollar to come in, typically in a guided format, and hunt and pay in a way that the finances directly benefit 
the community and the conservation of the place where the hunting is is occurring. And China actually had a very similar model to that up until 2006. So this kind of gets into your the second part of your question. Um, one of the forms of hunting that has historically occurred in China is this same model where you know wealthy international adventure seekers would pay big money, um, you know, tens of thousands of dollars for a tag, and pursue any number of species, including, by the way, the Sichuan golden takin that I talked about. That was one of the species that people would pay to be able to hunt. Another one that was, and that would incentivize local people to not kill and eat the animals. Yeah, it's more alive. It's it's worth far more to some out of town dude. Yeah. than it is in your cooking pot. Yep. Yeah. So a really good example of that, and one of the one of the places where I I presented on this subject in 2010, there was a workshop that was hosted by um, a variety of partners, including the Chinese government to essentially explore the idea of reopening this sport hunting program that had been closed in 2006. And this was hosted up in the Northwest part of China in a, a province called Xinjiang in a city called Urumqi. And that's close to the border with Mongolia by close. I mean, it's like a, I don't know, 15 hour horrendous bus ride. But if you go North in Xinjiang towards Mongolia there's this huge wildlife park where historically prior to the 2006 ban, um, there was international sport hunting, as they term it, for Marco Polo Argali sheep. So one of the reasons that the Marco Polo Argali rams are so appealing as a, a trophy species for these international adventure seekers is that they carry around a set of horns that would make, you know, the North American wild sheep kind of pale in comparison, if you'll forgive such a comparison. I'm comfortable with that. All right, because we're talking about an animal with horns potentially up to six feet on each side of its head if you yeah. were to uncurl them. Yeah, so it's like it it grows. like So so Americans, like, you know, our audience, our audience familiar, you look at a bighorn or a doll sheep. Now, they're getting big when they achieve what we call full curl. Yeah. Okay? Now, a lot of big doll sheep are well past full curl, but meaning when you look at it from the side, that horn describes a 360-degree circle. If you were to, like, uncurl that circle and measure the length on a big doll sheep, like, 40 inches is the threshold where a doll sheep becomes like, holy shit, did you hear about Dave? He shot a... 40 plus inch doll sheep. So that's a big one, but these sons of bitches are six feet long horns and they get like double curlers. We used to joke about doll sheep, like, because you're trying to find a full curl because it's legal. And then we joke, like, he's like a double curler, but they really are double curlers. Well, they're darn near. I mean, I'm, I'm swiping Insane through some looking. pictures right now. On the on the phone here, and it's just I mean they yeah. Look. So go look at a picture of a Marco Polo, and you can see why. Now I shouldn't say this. If you understand people's devotion to sheep, you could see why you might spend say sixty seventy thousand yeah, dollars to go hunt the Marco Polo. Me. Like you look at you look at what you know a a wild sheep tag goes for here in North America. 
And, you know, sometimes those get up into six figures if they're being auctioned off at like a wild sheep foundation event or something yeah, like that. Yeah, like, like, in, well, the, the, so if you, okay, if you're going to go doll sheep hunt in Alaska, there's no tag limitation, right? It's generally no tag limitation. So if you want to go this year, if you can find an outfitter, he's going to get tagged for you. you have, if you're a non-resident, um, if you're a non-resident and you don't have a direct relative in Alaska, you can only hunt doll sheep with a guide. That hunt is going to cost you to do like a high quality doll hunt. It's going to cost you north of 20 grand. You could spend more, you can get it for less, but expensive. The most expensive tag that sells in the country every year is what's called a governor's tag in Montana um, for bighorns, which lets you hunt. It gives you the whole year, and you pick your unit hunt anywhere in the state that's open to sheep hunting. And that tag will sell um, for as high as more than $400,000. It's and it's pushed up close to a half million dollars to hunt a bighorn. But the guys that do that then go hunt along the Missouri breaks where the biggest bighorns in the country are killed. Um, so you could hunt a hell of a lot of Marco Polos for what it would cost you to buy a governor's tag and shoot it. All Western states governor's tags usually go for, I shouldn't say all, most Western states bighorn governor's tags go for more than $100,000. Yeah, and I with the Marco Polo hunts. Sheep of fools, man. <laughs> I, I, there may be cases of them getting into the six figures, but the numbers I've heard thrown around are in like the twenty five thousand dollar range for a Marco Polo hunt. Is that right? Yeah, God, that was but, a lot more expensive than that. Yeah, and and once you're all in, maybe it is. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Like the logistics of getting there, and you know the the logistics of traveling with a firearm I, I have no idea what it would even entail to bring a rifle into china if that's an option china is much more restrictive in terms of the uh the management of the public's possession of firearms it's it's virtually prohibited for the common citizen of china to be in possession of a firearm yeah, it's draconian man yeah I you're would. controlling a pop well, well we'll save that so there you are yeah <laughs> so i went presented at this conference um in in xinjiang province and then had a chance to go up and visit this park where historically um the ability to offer a limited number of marco polo argali sheep ram hunts was a uh, an important element of conservation on the landscape and some of the primary it was funding it was it was funding a couple of things you know first and foremost it put a large finance it attached a large financial value to an animal that otherwise might be poached and reduced to the value of you know a, a plate of food yeah and this this conversation actually it's kind of it's uncomfortable to, for me to be thinking in these terms right like the notion that this animal has this high dollar value on the landscape to the point where somebody wouldn't want to eat it because it's only worth as much of its food as i'm saying that it kind of makes me yeah, but when, uneasy, but when you're having that conversation, and it's a it's a valid conversation around rhinos, elephants, okay, yeah, where it's generally you're generally talking about um, 
depleted resources. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you take away, you disincentivize poaching because people recognize if I leave that thing out there, the, the financial gains for my community will far exceed the caloric gains I will have from consuming that animal. Then the other thing is, uh, that's a limiting factor is poor range condition. So we're talking about a landscape where, uh, pastoralists have been grazing livestock, predominantly yaks for thousands of years. And I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on the range conditions up there, but, uh, the general kind of lay of the land was a very mode appearing kind of rolling hills, not as rugged as I would have expected, but just not like a preponderance of forage for domestic or wild species to consume. Um, so part of the goal, my understanding is, uh, was to work towards reductions of the amount of livestock grazing in occupied sheep habitat okay. in that landscape. So kind of a twofold conservation. So you're, if, you know, if you're going to do that, you had to bring in some sort of cash economy. Yeah. Yeah. So in 2006, apparently, as the stories go that I've heard from my friends who are natural resource managers in China, the Chinese government wanted to revisit their policies around managing this trophy hunting program. And as part of that process, at some point, we're seeking some public engagement in the conversation. And it was a surprise to the public that this hunting program existed. And there was sort of a public outcry against having this sport hunting taking place where foreigners were coming into China, paying big money to hunt these big game species. So there was a moratorium placed on the sport hunting program in 2006. And my understanding is that that has persisted through now that there's still no sport hunting program. So putting that part of hunting in China aside, there is a lot of uh, people going out into the woods and killing animals for their consumption. Um, Pot hunters. Pot hunters. There's definitely a lot of that. And one of the... But I guess pot hunters kind of implies illegal take. Yeah. And... So it's interesting to be in a country where, um, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to get your bearings in a lot of ways, right? So I was very much on a steep learning curve about the ecology of the system, the social dynamics, the political dynamics. And I think there's a lot of gray area around the amount of risk someone is taking in pot hunting, want to use that term, um, you know, going out and killing, let's say, a wild boar that they're going to bring home and eat. I think a fair bit of that in these really remote rural communities is essentially condoned and not likely to result in anybody being prosecuted. Yeah. But I also think it's not really legal. And I, and I know that there's a fair bit of uh, essentially corruption around the subject. So one of the nature reserves where I worked, as an example, I would routinely spend the morning doing some field work, come in for lunch, and then go back out in the afternoon for more field work. And at the reserve headquarters, as part of a uh, ecotourism model 
they had a hotel with a restaurant and I would stay at this hotel and the mountains were like right out the back. It was a beautiful place to work. And one day I came back from my field work and there were a load of police cars, like dozens of police cars that were there. And they were having a meeting of police officers from all around the surrounding communities. And they'd all come to this place as a gathering point. And I went in for lunch, sat down, and the waitress came out to take my order. And she asked me if I would be interested in trying any Munt Jack. Mm-hmm. I was like, Munt Jack? We're in a nature reserve. And it turned out, based on what she had told me, that these police who were there for the convention in the nature reserve had gone out, killed some Munt Jack for their lunch inside the reserve. And she was offering to share some of this meat with me. Yeah. So you have the law enforcement officers there participating in what based on my my understanding of the situation would be a clearly illegal activity if anybody else was to engage in it but essentially doing so with impunity yeah so that's an example there was also a case that i heard about another police officer accidentally shooting a villager by mistaking the villager for a wild boar that was his defense that he had mistaken this human being in the thick brush for a boar that he was out trying to hunt and that guy was prosecuted for shooting the dude he didn't kill him but he shot the guy and the whole conversation about well what about the fact he was out there hunting isn't that yeah illegal and the reason i was digging into this stuff and asking these questions i was i was kind of curious like i wonder what it would take if you know if somebody wanted to go hunting here so i was always kind of trying to feel out the situation and get a handle on what people were doing but in terms of the asiatic black bears a lot of the poaching that happens there is a result of direct conflict between humans and the bears so are they as bad as uh or is prone to getting into tangles with people as grizzlies or just worse than black bears but not as bad as grizzlies it's a it's a it's a good question i think you know obviously if a person gets into a tangle with the grizzly, I think the outcome is probably more likely to be fatal. But there were instances, in fact, during the research I was conducting um, down in Yunnan province in one of my study sites, there was a guy who tried to run a bear out of one of his cornfields and the bear turned around and killed the guy okay. while we were working there. And, you know, the, the people, it was actually kind of an upsetting deal because I was traveling from reserve to reserve and I'd kind of gotten to know folks in the, on the staff of these different nature reserves. And they knew I was like the, the foreigner bear researcher. And so I got to this, I got to this dinner one night after a long day of traveling and this guy who worked on the reserve came running up to me and my Chinese has never been great. And oftentimes like virtually all the time I'd be communicating through a translator. This guy came running straight up to me with his, camera he like he really wanted to show me something and i had no idea like you know what he wanted to show me so i I start flipping through these pictures and there were pictures that were taken of this this guy's corpse after the after the bear mauling and they're pretty grotesque photos it was pretty upsetting stuff so the conflicts between black bears and um farmers in these communities are very real i mean crops get raided livestock are depredated and people are not armed. So there's a lot of poisoning, a lot of snaring, 
Um, and then there are these incentives. So not only does the black bear represent, you know, this, this difficulty for your livelihood, this animal that comes in, poses a threat to you physically, has the potential to decimate your crops, has the potential to destroy your apiaries, because a lot of people were keeping bees in that country, um, has the potential to kill your goats. But can you give us a quick just physical description of the that bear compared to our yeah, black really, bears? Yeah, really similar to American black bears in terms of size and kind of physical structure. Um, they have a more, a longer kind of more pronounced mane around their neck. And then the classic distinguishing characteristic is the crescent moon on their chest. So one of the common names given to the Asiatic black bear is the moon bear. They have this beautiful oh, white. Oh, it's the same animal. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, moon bear. So aside from, you know, all of the perceived and real difficulties of coexisting with that species for these folks who live, who overlap habitats with the bear, um, these animals have a huge price tag attached to them. And there are two reasons for that. One is the value of their gallbladder, which is a key ingredient in traditional Chinese medicines. Um, and the other one is that their paws are a key ingredient in one of the most epic feasts that exists anywhere in the world. And have you ever eaten bear paw, Steve? No. Yanni, you ever eaten a bear paw? No, never cooked it. So there's this feast called the, the Manchu Han Imperial Feast. And depending on who you ask, it has somewhere between 184 and 320 different dishes spans over the course of three day three days and this feast first took place during the Qing dynasty and Qing dynasty was like mid 1600s until the early 1900s and it was exclusively for um, the elites right like emperors would be the people consuming this and very elaborate um, you know basically you'd go from meal to snacking to another meal to more snacking and everything was all these exotic difficult to obtain ingredients so it includes things like uh eating the bird's nests that are made out of bird saliva yeah they, they make that into soup That's i've messed around trying to make that with with uh, you know uh swallows nests here the uh, mud that, swallows uh, that sounds like i could never muddy. extract the stuff i was after out of it yeah, yeah, doesn't I? I didn't have any luck with it. Yeah, I think they they they, they get it consomme, from swiftlets, they, they, right? Yeah, they thicken consommes with it because yeah. the bird picks up sticks or mud and coats it with his saliva, and his saliva is like sticky. Yeah, and then you take that stuff and boil it down, and it extract and it liquefies it, mm-hmm. and then you reduce it down, and you're left with like a sticky substance that you use to thicken soup and broth. Yeah, it's thought to have all kinds of medicinal benefits, too. I think one of the things it's believed to do is really improve the health of your skin. And a lot of these different ingredients do, you know, according to traditional Chinese medicine. And some of it's been validated by, you know, Western medicinal tests as well. You know, like some of these ingredients are certainly bioactive. And bear bile is one of those things that is uh, a bioactive ingredient. It has medicinal properties but that same chemical can be manufactured in a laboratory setting but can can we hold up on this for a minute because yeah for most of my life 
when you killed a black bear in the U.S., you were not allowed to even have in your possession the bear's gallbladder. And then, do you know about this? What I know about this is that they've busted some major poaching operations, including, you know, in the Great Lakes states. There yeah. was one in Minnesota. Shoot them for paws and gall. For paws, paws and gall. But I think now you're allowed, to ha- you're, you're allowed to have it but not sell it. Like, you can retain your own bears. So, so rather than screwing with you on what you use, you can retain your own thing, but it cannot be sold. Yeah, it's interesting to, you know, to f- forbid someone from fully utilizing an, you know, parts of an animal that they would want to potentially yeah, make when use it's been of. Legal, it's like legally taken. Yeah. yeah. And you can understand where it's coming from because we know that these parts are being circulated around the globe. Like there's almost certainly right now somebody somewhere in Asia consuming an American black bear gallbladder in some product yeah. as you and I are speaking. My buddy um, found some bears that had just had the paws removed where in virginia hey everybody i'm talking here about montana knife company from our very own state of montana this company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world josh smith who over recent months i've become friends with and my god have i learned a lot about knives from this guy just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now, for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now, you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER. And you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people. 10% off with the code Meat Eater. That's a good deal. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow. So you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear.
Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's how, that's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. I don't know, they seem great to me. Just an improvement on perfection. The new system, made in the USA, gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed you can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're, they're, they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like you can still slide stuff right across the deck. It doesn't catch on the D-rings. The D-rings are built in. The drawer system fits any truck or van on the road in the USA from the last 20 plus years. Deck is a game changer. There's no more like leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you. The stuff I want in my truck is in my truck out of the way and secure. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Yeah. So people, everybody know, I mean, most people are aware of the fact that there's this market for ingredients involved with traditional Chinese medicine. That's kind of a, a, wildlife conservation challenge that a lot of folks are aware of but this thing about the bear paws is something fewer folks realize so this imperial feast the bear paw is served sometimes along with sturgeon as one of the ingredient one of the one of the key dishes in this emperor's feast so it's kind of a prestigious dish to be serving a lot of folks are aware of the the emperor's feast. Other things on that menu include like bean curd simmered in various bird brains, like cuckoo brain and chicken brain. So it's it's a wild list of dishes. And the longer list, the the one that totals 320 includes 196 main dishes and 124 snack dishes spread over the course of three days and the first time this place the first place this particular meal was ever served was in the forbidden city so in in beijing so there's like there's a history of bear paw being consumed by the elites and it persists to this point in time so from a conservation standpoint you have this animal asiatic black bear that presents all of these difficulties in your life and then in the meantime has this huge you know dollar sign or yuan sign in china over its head and to give you an idea and can and that together can ex- inspire some illegal take yes yeah so bear bile i was looking up some facts on this front and bear bile the going rate is as high as like close to 700 dollars an ounce and to put that in perspective the, the current price of gold when i checked a couple days ago was $1,268 an ounce. So it's about half the price of gold by weight. Yeah. This bile. And so from a, an outside perspective, you know, initially you can be like, man, these villagers, there's such a problem, you know, killing these bears that there's a, there's this conservation concern over. But then you spend some time in these villages and you, you see how hard people are working to scrape by and it doesn't take long at least it didn't take long for me to come to the conclusion if I was living in this setting and I was trying to support my family here, it would it would be not much of a stretch for me to see myself trying to poach one of these bears and market it. 
because there's there's just so so many incentives stacked up on top of each other. Oh yeah. So it's it's pretty easy to empathize with those folks. In one of the villages where I was doing this work, um, there's a nature reserve called Yela that's down in southern Sichuan province, and you know, a cool thing about traveling in these remote hinterlands of China, you know, you, everywhere you go, people are just wanting to meet you because they don't see a lot of Westerners. So I, I got to this village after a very long car ride, a village is called Shihui Yao. And we were having dinner with a bunch of the local folks there. And I met a gentleman who was going to be helping us with field work. And the guy was, you know, he was pretty relatively old to be out working in the mountains all day like he was probably somewhere in his early 60s or so i would say and through the translator he made this comment saying you know we don't we don't see a lot of white people here and in fact you guys are some of the first white people who have visited this village since the president's kids were here i was like the president's kids what year was this what year was it that I was there? Yeah. Would have been 2010 probably. Okay. I'm like, the president's kids. I'm like, what are, you, what are you talking about? And so the guy goes on to say, you know, the president who's famous for conservation, and this is all through a translator, right? I'm like, the president who's famous for conservation. He's like, yeah, when, when I was a small boy, my dad, this is, this is the 60-year-old guy talking, my dad was a guide for the president's sons when, when they came here to hunt for a panda no yes and i was like wait a minute roosevelt roosevelt's sons kermit and ted so were panda hunters yes they were so man that's something that would not go over well <laughs> these days man so i start jotting you think down. people get pissed when you shoot yeah so, what have so you? i should give so <laughs> we'll talk a little bit more about why they were there hunting pandas but initially i was totally skeptical about this i'm like you got to be kidding me but the guy like the fact that after driving for days bouncing around on these dirt roads and arriving at this village the fact that this guy knows that there's a president who has a conservation legacy i thought that gave it some credibility it's right amazing because you know if you were to go to you know a remote rural corner of the usa and ask him about the Chinese leader a hundred years ago, they're not going to know much. I would oh, imagine. dude, people watch us so much more closely than we watch them. Yeah, fair point. I still felt like it led some credibility. So I, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, if this is true, this is just too epic of a story. I've got to capture like as many details as I can capture. So I started jotting down notes. Um, and then when I got back to the USA, I started doing some digging. And the guy who was with me, his name was Suju Muji, and his dad's name was Suju Shila. And I caught that, those details from the stories. And this is all through a translator as we're out doing the field work for my project. And when I came back to the USA, I learned about the Kelly Roosevelt's Asiatic Expedition, which included a detailed account of them traveling to this exact place on the map and it, like a blow-by-blow blow story of them finding and returning to Western science the first specimen of a panda bear. So they were like their old man in that they were specimen hunters. They were, that's exactly right. So on that yeah. expedition, and, and this wasn't the first, but on that particular expedition, in addition to bringing back the panda, 
they brought back more than 5,000 bird skins okay. from that trip. So they're just, they're shooting everything. And this was in the era. But their old man was very heavily involved in that as well. Yes. For a long time, that was biology. Yes, absolutely. We yeah. were still in it. Like, you got to realize, in his era, yeah. okay, so late 1800s, we were still in, in a descriptive phase. Yes. Cataloging what was here. Yeah. And a big, like, in a thing that Roosevelt, like, when he wanted to be a biologist, that's what he thought that that was. Yeah. I'm not taking anything away from this. Oh, no, it, no, no. I know, are, I know you're not. And I'm not, I'm not, like, yelling at you about it. But I'm just saying, like, it's just, like, Audubon. You mentioned, like, Audubon. Yeah. Audubon. Shoot it, was stuff a specimen it. hunter. Draw it. Um, Darwin was a specimen hunter. That was biology. Yeah. No, like comparative analysis of dead shit laying on a table. <laughs> yeah. Now there's a string of these. And so the cool thing about that experience, you know, I'd learned a little bit about, about TR at that point, but it opened up all these stories about the next generation of the Roosevelt's. And that's some of the most interesting, you know, some of the most interesting stories there are out there are around Kermit and Ted and some of their adventures. Kermit, Ted. Yeah. Yeah. So Roosevelt had a daughter, um, with his first wife and she died during delivery of that daughter. Then he went on to remarry a childhood friend of his and they proceeded to have, I believe five more children that were, uh, included, I think four boys and a girl and the first two sons, Ted was the oldest and Kermit was the second oldest. And they went gallivanting on these adventures with their dad. So I know you're into suggested readings. There was a, there was a trip that Kermit and Teddy senior, the president took, um, exploring the river of doubt. Yeah. That was 1913, 1914, that expedition. And it damn near killed Teddy Roosevelt. He was, he was threatening to overdose on morphine so as to not be a hindrance to the rest of the party. And the drama of that trip, they had, they had one guy, one of the most skilled canoe handlers on that trip, drown. You had another guy get murdered. You had Teddy Roosevelt so sick with malaria that he was threatening basically to overdose and commit suicide so as to not slow the party down. You had Kermit saying to his dad, if you kill yourself, you're going to be more of a burden because I am guaranteeing you we're going to bring your body out of here and it's going to be harder to lug your corpse than to have you helping us move your sick self out of here. They were down to like so little, the, what's the malaria drug? Quinine? Is that right? You, yeah. Am I saying that right? One of them. So they Malarium, were, I think it was quinine. quinine. It's like what they used to, tonic water was something that during in the British Empire, it was like a, a, a malarial preventative drink it was like tonic water is quiet was like soda water with quinine and the sweetener in it yeah so they're down that they have this they have like a ration of quinine for the trip and uh kermit had malaria as well and he he was basically foregoing treatment and giving it to his dad and the doctors finally forced him to take an injection of it because he was all messed up but didn't want to admit it so they got back and later in life, you know, Teddy, he, either here as doctor, 
at one point claimed that like years of his life had been shaved off. It might have been a doctor who, after Teddy's death, said, yeah, if he wouldn't have had that malaria case, he would have lived another 10 years. Yeah. So it was a rugged, gnarly trip. And Kermit and, and Ted, they did another, they, they had done a previous uh, Asiatic expedition in the 1920s, and they published a book from that expedition as well. And that, the title of that book is East of the Sun and West of the Moon. So the expedition that involved the hunting of the panda... They published a book, Trailing the Giant Panda. I got a copy of this book after hound, like scrounging libraries all over the country to try to find a copy of this book. And everything in the, in the account lined up perfectly with what this dude told me. Was it a hard hunt? It, it actually was surprisingly hard. And what, what made the big difference was the fact that they had a snow come in and they were able to pick up a set of tracks in a bamboo thicket and trail the bear after... I mean, they... they had walked and ridden on horseback countless miles in search of a bear. And then finally, in this, what is now the Yela Nature Reserve in southern Sichuan, they finally bumped into a man who knew the mountain well enough to get him to the right place. And they cut the track of a panda. And the story goes Just that... Just in there nibbling on some bamboo. Yeah, so the, the bear ended and up... And then here they come. Yeah, if I remember right, the the bear was like in the process of disappearing uh, into the thicket as both sons fired simultaneously taking this panda bear. And then they, you know, they came back to the U S and in addition to all the, all the other skins they had, they had the first panda delivered to Western science. And if anybody's interested in seeing this panda, it is on display in Chicago at the field museum right now as we speak really and has been ever since carl's panda no no <laughs> kermit 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 and ted and Dude, the, the amount of adventures that guy got mixed up in who are we talking tr yeah oh yeah like cuba <laughs> for example i mean everything like how he became president so yeah mckinley is president gets yeah. killed by an anarchist yeah he becomes president he gets shot yeah the, the his glasses in his pocket deflect the and bullet. his speech he had like such a lengthy speech and it was folded up enough times in his pocket that in conjunction with his glasses case it slowed down the slug enough that it lodged inside his rib cage and he knew enough about anatomy he knew he'd been shot in the chest but the fact that he was he was not coughing up blood led him to the conclusion that his lungs had not been perforated. And gave his speech. And and you know how he started off his speech, take a, right? I'm tougher than a bull moose. Yeah. Or something Ladies and gentlemen, I, th- this is roughly what he said. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but I've just been shot. But it will take more than one bullet to stop this old bull moose. And then he went on to orate for a couple of hours. This was in Milwaukee. See, that's, that's the difference. Lincoln, his speeches were so tidy and short that they wouldn't hit like a Lincoln speech isn't going to stop a bullet. That's true. Cause he wrote his best one on an envelope. Yeah. That was back in the old days. Short and sweet. Yeah. My old man always, he like my, my father was fond of that quote. Some people attribute to Mark Twain, but it's, uh, forgive the long letter. I didn't, I didn't have, have time, time to, to write, write a short, short one. I don't know if that's actually... I, everybody attributes everything to Twain. Yeah, but I've I've heard that one attributed to Twain by a fair number of folks, too. So I think, th- I think that might be valid. 
but yeah, it was like I had a little a little chill go down my spine when this when this guy in yeah, it's crazy. rural southern China is like, oh yeah, the president's sons are here. We haven't seen a lot of white people around here since then. That was it was pretty cool. Yeah. So do they have um do they have populate wildlife populations that like are even capable of sustainable harvest? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. So they could have sustainable regulated hunting. Yeah. Not enough is, you know, not enough the ratio of people to hunting opportunity would be so high, so much higher than in the USA. But yeah, I mean, a lot, you know, one of the interesting species I encountered during my field work was bumping into pheasants in their native habitat. You know, I, I'd be poking around looking for bear scats as part of my research. I'd be, man, this looks like some pretty good bird cover. And all of a sudden, cha, 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 cha. rooster would go cackling off. Out native of pheasants. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, driving around on mountain roads, you come around the bend and uh, in the middle of the two track, there would be a, a golden pheasant standing there, a wild golden pheasant. And they look, they're so just incredibly bright gold in their coloration. They look like they have to be fake. Yeah. But yeah, people in the have native tried to get People have tried to get golden pheasants established here in the U.S. Yeah. Why? <laughs> I don't know. Why up uh, regular pheasants? That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, they're, you know, I love hunting. I love hunting pheasants, but I do feel like, and I mentioned earlier that I've had a great time hunting these ibex down in the Florida mountains of southern New Mexico, and that is, I think, one of the toughest archery hunts probably anywhere in the world. It's a gnarly hunt. Um, but there is something, in my opinion, uh, detracted from the experience when you know the animal that you're hunting is not indigenous to the landscape where you're hunting. Oh it. yeah, man. That's why I couldn't really, I couldn't, re- I couldn't really deeply enjoy hunting in New Zealand. Yeah, exactly. All of the wildlife, not all the wildlife, all of the huntable wildlife is non-native and doesn't have like a historic context on the ground. Now yeah. I'm full of hypocrisies because I'll hunt turkeys. In states that aren't native turkey range, yeah, um, I like to hunt wild pigs, but I don't like hunting them as much as I like hunting the native stuff. At the same time, I also like hunting in areas that have a deep history of human interaction with the animals. You know, yeah, that's why I'm interested in the Arctic. But I'm not interested in Antarctic because it's absent of, of 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 human history and absent of of a, a a legacy of human interaction, human relationship with the wildlife. So it it does detract from it for me. Now, my friend Remy, who likes to hunt in New Zealand a lot, you know, he points out that there is like a they've established a culture of hunting, a cultural relationship with hunting. But there's just a big difference there where in New Zealand, you might have a conversation like, oh, we should go hunt that area because the government cullers haven't been in there lately. So on one hand, you have government efforts to eradicate or greatly reduce wildlife populations because they're causing irreparable environmental damage, according to some people. And you're also out trying to do like 
you know, a recreational sport hunting, a meat based sport hunting. It just, it's, it just gets too damn confusing. <laughs> you know, I, I, I just had a very difficult time enjoying it. Yeah. Yeah. And the same thing goes for the fisheries too. You know, like I would, yeah, I, any fish I, there. I would rather, and I do often hike like into remote stream sec- sections where I can catch the indigenous trout that exist there, but which have been supplanted by non-native trout farther downstream in the watersheds. Yeah. You know, like there, and, and I would say the most beautiful pheasant I have seen was that one that came cackling out of the thicket in China. I was like, Oh, a native pheasant. Yeah. I've never seen that before. That was, that was awesome. So yeah, your question that led to the story about the pheasant is whether or not there's opportunities to hunt these species sustainably and absolutely there would be um are the mechanisms in place to really manage it effectively at this point in time not that i'm aware of i mean you know we have a whole infrastructure of game game and fish agencies operating essentially at our equivalent of the province level which they do not have at least in a way that specializes around hunting and angling the way ours do. Yeah, we've been toying with this for a hundred years here. Yeah, and I don't think we've got it all perfected or figured out either. Frankly, we're getting we've got it pretty good, better than anywhere in the world. Yeah, we've got room to improve. We have though. a more sustainable system. Yes, I agree, and we have room to improve. Yeah. What, okay, what do you feel we're not doing right? I feel like uh, the most pressing needs, which are directly related, is a broader base of funding for conservation work. And linked directly to that is the notion of a, a, a consistently available form of funding for non-game conservation work. Mm-hmm. So I think Are you need... familiar with the Blue Ribbon mm-hmm. panel project? Yeah, I am. I've been paying close attention to that. And I got to say, some of the people who have been involved with that work, um, the soon-to-retire director of Arizona Game and Fish, a guy named Larry Voiles, has been right in the middle of that work. And there's, there's nobody I admire more than Larry as a conservationist right now. And so there's some brilliant minds who are putting a lot of thought into how to address that need but that is i would say the overarching um example of what i'm what i'm talking about when i'm saying we don't have it all figured out yet yeah like we don't have the money figured out for one thing you know you you were at a dinner that i was at at in 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 new mexico Mm -hmm. and someone got up and was talking about desert bighorns Mm -hmm. doing desert bighorn conservation work and he said uh we we joke in new mexico that wildlife conservation comes down to water and money but with desert bighorns you don't even need the water (laughs) just the money yeah yeah and you know desert bighorns are i would say one of the species that are probably easiest to raise funds for you have a lot of a lot of individuals and organizations with relatively deep pockets who are looking to pony up money to support that work and that's fantastic and i applaud that I'm glad that's going on, but I'm because also there's that association with them being a game animal. Yes, yeah. but I'm also a huge fan of an intact biota that includes all of the obscure 
species that we can't shoot and eat. And I see those as being key elements to a fully rounded outdoor experience. You know, like going out, and this is an extreme example, but to go out on a an elk hunt and have elk be the only thing you encounter would be a very hollow experience in my opinion. Yeah, no gray jays, no stellar jays, yeah. the pine squirrels. Yeah, and so weasels. I'll throw another J, the pinion J, because we're not worried about Stellar's J's too much around here. But pinion J's, we are. And it's hard to get money for um, funding the research or doing the conservation work to support that species because the way we fund conservation through hunting and fishing. So it'd be nice. Because, like, most state level conservation work is funded by hunters and fishermen and hunters and fishermen are interested in fish and game and so a lot of that money goes to support fish and game yeah and that but there's the thinking that you're um, you're well aware of there's the thinking that by taking care of these apex animals um you're taking care of that that has a cascading effect you're taking care of all these other things like it's a piece of rhetoric thrown out there, mm-hmm. right? Yep. The elk work often comes down to securing wintering range. Mm-hmm. Waterfowl work comes down to securing wetlands. That's probably the when best you secure example. wetlands, yep. all things benefit. When you secure yep. big riparian zones, yes, all things benefit. So that's like a, a a justification or a rationale that's put forward by groups who are investing very heavily in game animals when people bring up to them but what about everything else yeah and there there's validity to that argument and i do think hunters and anglers you know we have a lot to feel really good about that we have collectively accomplished and contributed to over the last century plus that being said um I think there are conservation opportunities missed as a result of inadequate funding for some of these others. So where could the money come from? Do you feel that other user groups should be ponying up the way hunters and fishermen have ponied up? Or how do you think it should go? I think... Or just hard funding from the federal government? Well, there's a few ways to skin that cat. Um, I think we've got some examples of success. You know, the ability of the state of Minnesota, as an example, to pass an increase in their state sales tax um, to support this interesting combination of conservation and the arts. Mm-hmm. Um, Two things I'm interested in. Yeah. Yeah, likewise. I mean, so there, there's an example. Um, I do think, you know, that people rightly point to Pittman Robertson and Dingle Johnson as phenomenal advancements in our conservation model. And there's obviously applicability of that kind of an approach to all kinds of other gear that people buy. And it's fascinating to look back at the history of those pieces of legislation being debated and discussed and how well supported they were by the industry. And it's a little puzzling to me that there's not similar support and leadership coming from private industry now to push for similar excise taxes on all the other stuff that 
outdoor enthusiasts buy. And I personally, I, I don't have any qualms about more people paying into the system and being vested as uh, self-identifying supporters of conservation. I think if we are able to approach discussions around uh, consuming wildlife from a thoughtful place, um, which many of us can do well, those, those discussions, I believe, will open up the minds of other interested conservationists as opposed to like digging our heels in and saying, no, we're the ones who are paying for conservation and you know, you're not, you're not welcome here in our kind of decision space. Yeah. That exclusive approach, um, the, the, it feels kind of like trench digging to me. Like, yeah, but oftentimes when other people come in and want to have opinions, they go against our interests and hunters have developed over the last hundred years, a sort of, uh, they kind of have staked a claim mm-hmm. on how wildlife decisions are made. I, and this this conversation um, is one I've had a lot of times with a lot of people whom I really respect and admire, and I can understand that mindset. But I also have to kind of reject it a little bit, and here's why. I don't think, in the long run, if we want to retain our hunting and fishing rights as our culture changes around us. We have to be able to communicate about that with the broader community of non-hunters, whether or not they're paying into the system. Because the fact of the matter is, people can mount challenges to hunting and angling and trapping whether they're buying into the system or not. And they have done that successfully. There are examples, you know, the, the I mean, chipping Mount away. legal challenges. Yeah, legal oh, challenges. Have, yeah, every election yeah. cycle. So the notion that we're going to, you know, we're going to win in the long run by digging trenches and not be able, and, and not effectively with an openness to dialogue with people who have different viewpoints. Talk about this stuff. And explain, and I think you know you, you and others do a good job of representing the the mindset and the the heart of many of us where we're coming from. We need more of that. What we don't need is like entrenchment and an unwillingness to engage in thoughtful dialogue about this stuff. Oh, yeah, and and I admire all that, but so much of what you hear is so ridiculous. Yeah. When 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 people who aren't immersed in this decide to dip a toe into wildlife management, oftentimes it's absurd. Yeah. So that's where sound science being like 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 the the guiding light. The things that happened around Florida's bear hunt. Yeah where they have a recovered popula- a recovered above objective population of black bears. Yeah. Open a season and put a quota system in place. We will not pass this threshold of bear mortality. 
get close to the threshold much quicker than they thought they would have. Demonstrating that they might have more bears than they thought they did. End the hunt early before they hit the quota. Anyone looking at this would be like, that's a successful, that's a successful hunt allowing people to exercise their right of extracting a renewable resource in a way that is raising money for wildlife work. How is it treated in the press? Florida massacres. Yeah. 300 bears. Yeah. Let's shut it down. So, no shit that you generate a lot of antipathy from people who 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 are just not really welcoming to the new voices who are coming around who haven't aren't vested in this aren't invested in it aren't really aware of the underlying like core principles of the system but they are just like going based off some shit i heard this morning on the news it drives you nuts it does drive you nuts i agree and i think so it's like i wish like that you sometimes wish that like new jersey cat ladies would stick to their cat yes so what's the solution to that what's the solution to addressing this valid concern that you're raising i don't know i don't know and this i i don't i don't believe that entrenchment over time will be a winning strategy i agree with you carl so I think here's here's what I believe. That's Yanni coming in forcefully. <laughs> Thanks, Yanni. Here's what I believe the solution to be. Okay, I believe if you can talk about this stuff eloquently, we. And listen, I agree with you too. I'm just bringing up a yeah. way of looking at it. Yes, and and it's a valid it's a valid way of looking at it. But I it's I, like a, it's like that saying like okay I'm wrong, but am I right? Right. I don't I'll bring you up are. a way of looking at it. I don't think we can collectively stick our heads in the sand and ignore the cultural changes around us. The the biggest one of which is the increasing urbanization of our citizenry, which comes hand in hand with a disconnection from the natural world. So I think the solution to that is that rather than sticking our heads in the sand and just digging trenches where we're in our own little echo chamber about how what we're doing is totally right and defensible and those people out there who see things from a different vantage point have it all wrong. I believe the solution is that we capitalize on what E.O. Wilson termed biophilia, the fact that there's this innate desire in human beings to interact with nature. And I don't think that's going to go away over a generation. I don't think that's going to go away over two or three or four generations. I think it is innate to our species that we have this desire to be somehow interactive with nature. And I believe if we have the right ambassadors for these activities, we can welcome in folks from that urban majority to be mindful participants who engage in the outdoors and join us as ambassadors for these these thoughtful, beneficial, constructive activities, and that over time, our ranks and our impact, rather than being diminished, swell, and our relevance swells, and our base of funding swells. 
And I think the path to that approach involves thoughtful discussion, thoughtful discourse, respect for other viewpoints, and a willingness to speak authentically about where we're coming from with people who maybe have a different set of life experiences. Have you ever done a hunt where you had to go and pass a test before you could apply for the hunt? The only thing that pops into my mind is that classic fence crossing in hunter education. No, no, no. no. I'm talking, <laughs> I for know. instance, now. Like you got to hit a plate. Kenai, at, if you're going to hunt moose yeah. on the Kenai Peninsula, yeah. as of this year, yeah. you need to go in and pass an online course Oh, about antler configuration on moose. Huh. In Montana, when you go to get a black bear permit, mm-hmm. you need to pass an ID course. Can you differentiate from a grizz a grizzly? Yeah, New Mexico has a lion identification. Like Colorado mandatory. has a lion identification. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yes, Utah. I just did mine the other day. I did a fifteen question exam before you can apply for a tundra swan permit huh. because they want you to damn sure know the difference between a tundra swan and a whistler. Okay. All right. Yep. Tracking now. I just, uh, and this just, uh, this isn't just, uh, this isn't just like, I'm not just applying this to hunting, but I feel like there should be a thing in a utopia. There would be a thing where, in order for you to have an opinion, yeah, I love where you're going about <laughs> wildlife, <Yeah. laughs> wildlife politics, and wildlife conservation. Yep, you need to go in and pass a course. Yeah. And the course would be drawn up by people to be where it didn't reflect a particular viewpoint. It just measured your understanding of where we've been, where we are now, what the picture is, and what different people, are, what vision people are trying to pursue. At which point, when you pass said test, you can then say, man, I feel real bad about Petals the Bear. Yeah. Or whatever. That's utopia. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, the sad fact of the matter is that well beyond the discussions around hunting, a lot of people have a lot of opinions about a lot of stuff where they really don't have sound justification. I try so hard, unless I'm like arguing with my wife about something, I try so (laughs) hard to not articulate opinions about shit that I have no business talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the world would be a better place if more folks took that approach and if more folks you know had a real appetite for learning new things and having broadened horizons um, unfortunately that's not the world that we live in but I, I i sincerely believe and a lot of this is based on my experience with learn to hunt programs and with interacting um, with a lot of new hunters who have come into the activity as adults particularly from urban backgrounds, that this desire to experience the kinds of, you know, perspective-altering outdoor moments that the three of us and, you know, a lot of folks listen to this have a healthy dose of every year, the desire for those experiences exists in a lot of people who are just trying to figure out how to get there Furthermore, there are a lot of people who, if given the right catalyst, 
the light bulb can come on. And I believe in the grand scheme of conservation in this country, one of the most impactful things that we can do is help open up the door to those folks. And that is a different mindset than... I've taken 30 of them on their first hunting trip. Yes. So don't be telling me about this. Uh, dude, I'm... <laughs> I'm I'm preaching I'm preaching less to you and more just kind of I'm getting all defensive and my feelings are getting hurt. Oh no, dude. So what I'm what I'm saying and you should be taking it this way, what we need is more people willing to engage in these thoughtful conversations and willing to take people under their wings. And the folks that you've taken out, you know, I think a lot of those individuals embody exactly what I'm talking about. You have a lot of a lot of adult first-time hunters, a lot of women a lot of people motivated by food. Um, these are these are like universal. The ability to to have kind of a communal experience outdoors that results in being able to eat something healthy and share that with your family. The ability to go out and actively procure the calories that you're going to use to sustain yourself and sustain those whom you love. These are like fundamental, hardwired desires in human beings interact with nature eat something good biophilia and meat philia yeah dude meat yeah i see so they're one and the same it's one and the same interacting with nature hey, I, just, I had a guy email the other day and said uh his girlfriend doesn't like to hunt it sounds like my wife like his they don't like to hunt but they just like to eat wild meat and he said is there a word for someone who just eats wild meat yeah. I just thought it was wilditarian is what I, got I came it. up with. I got it. Is it wilditarian? No, it's not. Um so Dude, that's a tight word. A, a lot I like wilditarian. <laughs> I've got one I've got one that's even tighter for you though. Lay it on me. So if you look at the Latin root for venison. Okay. Uh venado in Spanish. Venison. Yeah, yeah. Ven veni. That means Miniani, we know that, that means to pursue. It means to hunt. So technically speaking, when somebody says venison, what do you think of? You think of deer meat, right? If you were to take a literal translation of venison, it would be meat that has been hunted. Venison, like you could you could pull out a quail and say, here's some venison. Okay. So I think these individuals that you just described, they would be venivores. Oh man. I like that. But the problem is the problem is not enough people know that that's what that means. Well, and we just invented it. Okay, let, let me lay it. Let, yeah, but yeah, but you got to factor in. Are you with that, Yanni? You look skeptical. No, I like it, but you need to re, you need to factor. You can't factor in knowing. You can't have it be that just because you know that you're right. You got to look at people like venison means deer meat, but they're saying, but that's not because I eat snap turtles turkey. and shit too, right? Yeah. So meat I that like has it. Been pursued, but. Let me tell you a tale. <laughs> okay. Okay. This is the last thing we're talking about. Well, yeah, Yanni, in the meantime, have you come any closer and you're thinking about how you're going to capture blood for blood sausage? No, I haven't been sitting here Googling. <laughs> no, I have not. What about like a siphon? You know, like if you're trying to drain an aquarium and you got the hose, you kind of get like the down downhill gravity thing going. Yeah, that's all fine. Like I said, you just got to be there with the implements to cool it Keep down. It cold. What if you shoot one on like a late season hunt when it's negative 10 degrees out? 
You're wouldn't, fine. Wouldn't that be part of the solution? I would think you want to put it into a, a, a capped container and, and limit its exposure to air. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. That's what I would be thinking about. Oh. But here's what I want to tell you. Yeah, okay. This isn't even relevant. Can this be our bedtime story? Because I think I have to go to bed and then get up and make it <laughs> and get a flight all within like four hours. Isn't it beautiful point. out here, though? Oh, it's wonderful. Got the stars. <laughs> right, I'm not going to tell you the thing I was going to tell you. You got Oh, come on. You can't do that. You got to do it in like a cliff notes. Okay, so I have a shirt. Um, I had a shirt that it just takes so damn long to. All right. <laughs> I had a, a I had a Savage Rifle shirt. Yeah. Okay. And the company is Savage. Yeah. Right. And their logo for a long time. Yeah. Was it was a Plains Indian with a headdress. Yep, the headdress. I remember. So I my shirt had a Plains on the right. Indian with his headdress. Yep. And it says Savage. So I I go to someone and I say, Hey, what do you uh what do you see? What's this shirt? Right? What does this shirt say to you? And she says, well, it says to me that you got an Indian on your shirt, and you're saying that that Indian is a savage, or Indians are savages. The truth of the matter is that Savage, the firearm company, was founded, started by a man who, due to no action of his own, happened to have the last name of Savage. Arthur Savage was the guy's name. When he was starting his company out, making lever-action rifles, an early client of his was Chief Lame Deer. He gave Lame Deer a good deal on a bunch of rifles. They became friendly. Lame Deer said, you know what? You could put my likeness. I like you so much. You could put my likeness on your rifles. Arthur Savage says, that sounds great. Okay? So there's what someone hears and thinks they're seeing and what they're really seeing. And to say a venisitarian or whatever. Not <laughs> venivore. A venivore. A venivore. That's such a good term. You can't go around and explain. Like, like, it's like wearing my shirt where you got to go around the people being like, no, 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 check it out. Right? Really? It just takes so much energy. Yeah. So I would have to say, people would be like, oh, no, because I eat snapping turtles and quails and shit, too. And I'd have to be like, oh, no, 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 because no, really, the root word, it just, I'd just get so tired halfway through. <laughs> I wouldn't have any time. Yeah, do you got any concluding thoughts? Yeah, you, you'd you have to be like me. <laughs> nice. You'd have, to be, <laughs> you'd have to be like me, where instead of even giving people your full name, you've been relegated to saying, J.P., yeah. So that you don't have to be like, yeah, it's Latvian, spelled with a J. Yeah. Da 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 da. Every day this man, every day this man has to explain his name. Yeah. No, I saw he's got, Yanni has an email signature, for those of you who have not emailed with Yanni, where it's got the spelling J A N I S and then in parentheses, Y A N I S, close parentheses, like so people can to help, to people, help people understand how to pronounce. His name. That I read that and I thought, oh, his name's Janice Yanis. <laughs> Janice Princes, Janice Princes. Uh, now, even my car, I got the kind of car you can talk to when you want to call someone with a Bluetooth connection. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have to say, uh, call Janice Poodless. <laughs> yeah. And it'll then, and then my kid's like, that's not his name. I'm like, well, <laughs> the car thinks his name is. So that's what we're going to call him right now until we get him on the horn. Then we're going to call him Yanni. 
Then your fo- your, your Yanita, car says Yanka. Um, yeah, once the computers figure out that you can just say "Call Yanni" and it, and it dials me up, we know we're in trouble. Then you'll know you've you've <laughs> achieved artificial intelligence. That's when you know, like the be- the, the beginning of the end has come, and soon the technology will be taken over. Okay, I don't have any concluding thoughts because I, I, I'm uh mine mine was my uh mine was the story about the t shirts. My concluding thought Yours is, is about that, your name. Is that I'm your on name board. Sucks. <laughs> Thanks, Mom, Dad. No, I'm on board with uh Carl's thinking on how we should uh be moving forward with uh you know, taking the time to accept those other viewpoints and it's I think feel like it's our responsibility to educate these people and you know May- I I hate that word, educate, because educate. It, people don't usually mean when people say they need to be educated. I yeah. find that people need, what they're really saying is they're saying I need to convince them to agree with me. Yeah, well, that's sure. what people. It's like code. It's like a weird sure. code language. But we're like, oh, the public needs to be educated. What you're saying really is like the public needs to see. Needs our to think friend, that I'm right. Our friend Greg Blaskovich showed us, like through his research, that so many people out there think that hunting is completely unregulated. Yes, that you all you need to do to go hunting is get a some sort of weapon and walk out into the woods, and if it's brown, it's down. Okay, so when there is that level of ignorance, then I don't feel bad saying, yes, I should be going out and educating okay. people. Uh, no, I agree. I like it. I like it. I understand what you're saying, but I've just, over the years, I've found that when people say they want to educate people, what they're saying is they want to get people to agree with them. And funny you bring up Greg's study because Greg was testing ways in which he could get people to agree with him. Mm-hmm. So yeah, let's go educate them, meaning let's get them to agree with us. But I also think there's like a little bit of cynicism where when people say like, oh, we, I want to be opened up to other people's viewpoints, you're sort of saying I want to pretend to be open to your viewpoints so that I can educate on my you about my viewpoints and have it be that you come out agreeing with me. You're not saying, you're not saying that I am this mushy undecisive thing open to you telling me shit that's going to make me re-question my core fundamental beliefs so the dialogue you're supposedly fixing to have you with might people, not even have a core fundamental belief about what we're talking about i have core fundamental beliefs about what i'm talking about right now about wildlife management in america okay so i'm not going to go around acting to people like I'm open to your viewpoints because I'm not really. I'm curious to hear what you think so that I can hear what you think and then tell you some shit to make you think otherwise. Kinda. <laughs> Kinda. I'm, not, I'm nodding my head in agreement. Like you agree with what I'm saying? Yeah. Or you want to go to bed? No. <laughs> Both. So, all right. That, I'm done. I, have, I swear to God I'm not saying another thing. Just turn that machine off when you're ready, honest. <laughs> it's been a good discussion. It's been a live, lively chat. So this notion about... Uh, now, hold on a minute. No, that was a joke because I'm not saying anything. All right. This, this notion about educating folks, um, I think there's utility in sharing 
information that is pertinent to the topic we're discussing. And I think there's a lot of folks out there who have no clue of the basics. And in those instances, if they have the desire to actually be informed, a degree of education is warranted. Absolutely. But the fact is, where we have the most potency around this topic, I think has less to do with like convincing people of hard facts with data and speaking about this in more personal ways that I believe are broadly relevant to our fellow human beings on like a species level. So reverence for nature, desire to eat well, desire to be active, desire to have healthy functioning ecosystems in which we can be participants. Those are those I believe for most people who have their, their basics met, you know, folks who are otherwise they're covered and they have, they have the ability to think beyond just survival mode. And it's important to acknowledge that for some people, their reality is survival mode of people who have, have survival mode box checked what we're talking about here around healthy land, eating well, being active, getting a good dose of nature. I think those are like universally appealing. And I believe that based in part on my experience interacting with people from other countries that are far more ecologically degraded than ours is, you know, talking to people who have spent their whole lives living in urban centers in China about the recreational opportunities that we have here in North America and having them say, I want to come do that with you sometime. And then having them come and experience that and having those experiences literally bring tears to people's eyes. Like the story I was telling you earlier today yeah. about the deer hunt. So these are things that I believe are hardwired into us. And I think it's more about communicating on a personal emotional level uh, than it is pre presenting facts. But I agree the facts are relevant, Yanni. Yeah. And yeah. I could I could rephrase it to uh to uh I guess I guess appease you so that it's more of just like exposing you're you. You're gonna appease me? Yeah, so that you're like, Yeah, Yanni, I like what you're saying. So that yeah, just like <laughs> expose people to whatever we do. Don't try to educate them but just expose them to what it is and yeah. then let them make up make their own decision you know i'm not gonna be mad if they're if they don't jump on uh, you know jump on my side and all of a sudden become the biggest conservationists and hunters in the in you know history of the united states you remember how michael jordan quit basketball then like came back mm -hmm. yeah i'm back into this recording <laughs> I'm coming out of retirement hard. I quit earlier, right? But I'm back now. And that's why we need some caffeinated <laughs> beverages around this table. I want to clarify that I am real comfortable with people who don't agree with me, especially if they have a good reason yeah. for it, um, a reason that I accept is valid. So it's complicated. Carl, thank you very much for joining <laughs> us. Batman, always glad to be here. Um. You always say things that make 
<laughs> despite all the shit I've been saying, you always say things that make me think a little bit different. Huh. Like I come out of the experience of talking to you every time, um, a changed person. So thanks for that. Appreciate it, man. That's a great compliment. And Giannis, thank you. Hey, pleasure to be here. Pleasure, yeah. And what a nice night. Oh, my Carl God, said. dude. Glad you guys like the deck, man. That that means a lot, too. Well, the light pollution's low here, so you can see the night sky. Beautiful. Yeah. If you've made it through this marathon podcast, <laughs> please go to iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and uh, leave a review. Give us a rating. We'd much appreciate it. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Telling you what, Decked is a game changer. Decked has completely changed how I load, organize my truck. All my stuff that I want is always in there, out of my way, and secure. It's perfect. If you own a pickup truck that you use, you know, like a truck, the Decked drawer system gives you weatherproof storage for all your gear. You can lock it up, too. You keep your tools and gear organized, job site or out in the field. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Go to deck.com slash meat eater. Get yourself some free shipping.